0: Welcome to A Certain Age, a show for women who are unafraid to age out loud. In the early 2000s, Laura Cathcart Robbins was a budding author, had two young kids, and was married to one of the most powerful men in Hollywood. She was also severely addicted to pills, to Ambien. When she decided to get sober, she couldn't find any quit-lit books that reflected her experience as a black woman. In her stunning and candid memoir, Stash, My Life in Hiding, she fills that void. Revealing how her race, self image, and privilege influenced her addiction and her eventual triumph over it. Laura is also the host of the popular podcast, The Only One in the Room. She writes and speaks on the subjects of race and racism, privilege, addiction, recovery, and divorce. She's a TEDx speaker and the LA Moth Story Slam winner. She joins me today to talk not only about what it takes to save yourself from addiction, but what it means to take charge of your happiness. Welcome,
1: Laura. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here.
0: Uh, I am really excited as well. I have I just finished your your stunning book last night. I mm. so enjoyed reading it. Um, I was sad to close the, the book, but I knew I was going to get to talk with you about it today. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I'm going to ask you a question I know the answer to because I did just finish your book, but I would <laughs> love it if you could share with our listeners, you know, how long you have been sober and what made you decide to capture your story in a book?
1: So I'll be coming up on 15 years sober. Uh, I got sober in 2008. That's the year I concentrate on in the book. It's about a 10 month period during that year. And I was um, in a, at the time in 2008, at the beginning of the year, I was in a high profile Hollywood marriage. and. I was uh, losing a battle with a uh, really debilitating ambient addiction. I had and have two sons. They were little then. And I had just been named the PA president at their school and been asked to join the board of trustees. And I made the decision, the, the very painful decision, to get sober. and. I am someone who didn't graduate from high school or go to college. I have always navigated everything through books. And I wanted to discreetly browse the shelves of my local bookstores and find a book about someone like me who was going through something like what I was going through. And then from there, figure out how to navigate it. And I could not. Um, I couldn't then. And a few years later, I didn't see any. and you know it just seemed outrageous to me that most of the books about um actually most of the books about addiction are are definitely written by white women um but also about divorce you know you just don't see that many books on divorce written by women of color and and you know i was obviously going through both those things and the books on addiction that were written by black women usually included like drug dens and prostitution and, you know, just kind of a hard scrabble life. And it's not my story. So in 2020, um, I made the decision that I was going to write the book I needed.
0: That's such a, um, a, a powerful thing. And that's a, a theme that I hear from a lot of guests that come on this show, that they created either the products or the resources or the uh, or the books or the conversations that they needed that were absent. Um, yeah. I, I, I had done some, you know, Googling and research. I saw you wrote an article in Good Housekeeping that talks about the sober space as being predominantly white. I just had a guest mm-hmm. on a few weeks ago, Thanmeet Seti, who wrote a book called Joy Is My Justice, which talks about how the wellness space is predominantly white, and and she wrote her book in in response to that. Uh, being the only person, um, you know, of color in certain situations and circles has got to be very isolating. I know you share in your book that. You know, in your elementary school, you were often the only black student. You know, you were in the sort of white Hollywood power broker circle. Even in rehab, um, you had the experience of being the only black person. You know, Mm -hmm. I would love it if you could share a little bit more with our listeners how that informed, um, or if it did inform your challenges with pills, and did it play any kind of role in your being able to get yourself back on track?
1: Yes. I actually have Joyous for Justice on my desk right now. Oh, you're kidding! No, that's... That stuff, like you know, she she and I have been in in contact. We're going to try to do an event together, but
0: that's so I amazing. literally just got the
1: book. she's, yeah, she's wonderful. We had a, we had a great conversation. Oh, that's so good. I'll I'll be sure to listen out for that. Um. So yes, being a a a young black kid, um. You know, I was five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten in Cambridge, Mass. And during those years, I was the only black kid um, in my class always. And, and at times during that time, I was the only black kid in my school. We were really um, poor when I was growing up, like welfare or food stamps or. But we always lived in nice neighborhoods. We lived in a, an upper middle class, uh, a middle class black neighborhood um, in, you know, the, the tiniest, like cheapest. Apartment in this neighborhood. It was really a duplex, and I went to private schools because my mom just got me scholarships and supplemented with by asking other people in our family for money. And so I had this this dual experience right away, where I knew that there were certain things that I could do and say at school that i that wouldn't fly back with my friends in my black neighborhood, and and vice versa. So it it didn't. It didn't feel like it came at a cost to me. I just learned really quickly how to edit myself and like, okay, this is, you know, I can move this way here, but I can't move this way here. And if I talk like I do at school, I get accused of talking white and, you know, when I'm at home and vice versa, not in my house, but in my neighborhood. And and so, you know, the other thing that, that became really clear to me was that I was the representative <laughs> for Black people, for all my white friends growing up. They didn't socialize with any other Black people. So everything that Black people were was me. And so there was this immediate kind of understanding that I needed to be as good as or better than them because otherwise the perception would be that Black people are less intelligent, that they are, you know, whatever it might be. If I wasn't, I was already poor, so I had that going against me um i didn't want to have any more strikes against me and it was a it was a subtle understanding i wasn't conscious of it all the time it was just something that i did and carried that with me into my teenage years and my my young adult years i i found myself you know when i entered the workforce again as the only i was either the diversity hire or just happened to be the token in wherever i was i was rarely in the company with other black people at work and and that was okay i i didn't really mind that i i didn't feel i never felt like people were um bigoted toward me or or i i i guess i guess that's it i didn't feel like people were bigoted toward me but i certainly felt fetishized um most of my most of my life by, by the white people or the dominant culture, whatever that was in my life. And, and accept it because I was exceptional, but not because I was just me. And, and so, you know, being a a young mom, well, I was 30s mom. But I felt like I was young. <laughs>
0: that's that's young. The, yeah, probably yeah. In LA, I had my first baby at 30 and I remember going into the OBGYN's office and they're like, it's so nice to have a young mother. And I was like, what? You know.
1: Yeah, but... <laughs> yeah. Like I didn't have a geriatric pregnancy like a lot of my friends are having now. I was both my kids before I was 35. And 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 just, you know, um waiting, like trying to figure out how to be a mom, how to, because I didn't know anything about being a mom. I was not the babysitting kid. I didn't particularly like children before I had mine. And, you know, there was this perception of me and my husband at the time that we were like this perfect couple. And I just, and we were this, obviously, this interracial, not obviously, we were an interracial couple. He's white. And I just, you know, I wanted to make sure that, that I held that perception that that I created when, or what I, I wanted to make sure that I held what I thought was the perception of me that I created as a little kid that I was as good as or better than everybody, and and so that took a lot of manipulating. Um, when I found pills, that was part of the burden that I was trying to relieve myself of, like the the living in authentically was was getting exhausting, you know, along with new motherhood. Of two young boys you know having two kids under five is a lot um mine were born one in 98 and one ninety nine, 99 and and pills really helped I mean I thought they were I thought they were so great because I I didn't know how to show up for my life before them and then all of a sudden I could in the way that I wanted to and so they really worked for me for a while the the Ambien that I was taking. I got a good night's sleep, you know, better than I'd ever had in my life. It was very seductive. And, you know, it, it, at first it was like I sleep so that I can be energetic, fun, you know, playful Laura during the day and have energy for everything. And then eventually the year I write about all I wanted to do was sleep. Like I just chased sleep because that's where I want it to be. So it took a very dark turn for me. but the you know the the using the pills the the addiction was my way of coping with these um disparities in my life of who I really was and who I presented and there was a burden on me in this leadership position at my kid's school i felt to represent um all black people and 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 not just um like i was the only representative i was the only person that they knew socially or in the school community, so that they would base their opinion on Black people because of, um, based on me. But I also had a voice where, where Black people hadn't had a voice for a while. So I was literally like the representative. I would sit at the table and voice our concerns and, and speak for my community. And that was a really powerful thing. But it also came at a cost and it was exhausting.
0: It, it sounds exhausting, and this sort of the burden of, of, of feeling the need to live an exemplary life of exceptionalism is something that sounds um, so challenging, it's something that's hard to put down, and I, I, I can relate to how exhausting it is to have, have young children and, 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 and try to, to navigate all that. Uh, Laura, we're heading into a break, but when we come back, I want to explore a little bit more about this, this notion of duality that you talked about a few minutes ago. We'll be right back, Laura. We're back. You were talking a little bit about this sort of dual nature. You felt that you were living a life that wasn't authentically yours, that you had to sort of take on and have this role. And, you know, from what i've under understand about addiction and and by the way, I will say I was addicted to cigarettes at one point, and I had a sense of sort of shame, and I was hiding that from different mm. people. So I can I, I when you talk about this sort of duality of, like, you know, people used to say to me, "You look like a runner." And I'm like, "Oh my God, I'm a smoker." <laughs> you know, and you you yeah. you hide things that you're ashamed of, and you. But you you had these, these sort of these two lives. You were in this marriage where you felt like you weren't being your authentic self. That you were also alone in certain circumstances, and then you had this um, this other secret that you were hiding. That you that yeah. you had the this, this this issue with the pills, you know. Do you feel that these two things sort of fed one another, that you had grown up in a way that made you feel like you had to have a secondary life um, that allowed you to be better at being an addict? Were they related?
1: i I think they were absolutely related. I think that the the way that I had to survive my childhood, because I mentioned the the duality in my school community at home, what I didn't mention was that I had an emotionally abusive stepfather who just honestly, when I was myself, it just rubbed him the wrong way. And the way that that manifested in my house was violent, violence and um, not physical violence directed toward me, but, but it my it made my home violent when I rubbed him the wrong way. So in order to survive that, I I edited myself with him as well. And I think that by the time I even entered my teenage years, I was so far away from who I was authentically, I didn't know the difference. But I think that living in authentically and the, you know, the older I got, the further that span grew between who I pretended to be. Or I don't know if it was just an act at that point. I don't think it was purely performative. I was just like someone else because I needed to be. I thought, you know, and as an adult, I didn't need that. I didn't need that to survive anymore, but I didn't know that it didn't, it didn't feel safe to be entirely myself. And I think that was the scaffolding for my addiction. I think that, you know, I, I can look back now with all the work I've done in recovery and pinpoint certain things in my life that were those, you know, very, like if you looked in from the outside, you might not know there were turning points, but they were for me. You know, decisions that were made for me and decisions I made that turned me left instead of right, and that was definitely one of them. Was the inability to look at, you know, I, through a therapeutic lens or whatever it might have been, as a young adult, as a, you know, in an adult in my thirties, to look at what, what what was really going on with me and why, and kind of trace it to the causes and conditions to see why I was the way that I was. I didn't do that. I just continued to act in this persona that served me the best.
0: You know, it's it's so interesting when you're talking, when you use the word persona, you know, I think yeah. of, and I'm thinking specifically too, you talked about you started the ambient when you were having trouble sleeping because you had two young kids that were keeping you awake and you were, you know, they were either up or you were worried about them and the ambience started off to be something that was um additive and beneficial. It made you fun, Laura, and gave you you know energized Laura, but then it took a dark turn and it it became something that's shameful but we have we there's so many personas that we have in life, and sometimes they're they're useful you know we have our work personas and our mom personas or different things, and you know do you feel that um there is a room for separate personas, or is it just better to be integrated? I'm not sure if this question is making any sense, but I think...
1: It, no, it totally makes sense.
0: You know, when I think about, like, mom and society, it's like I, for a while, struggled as a young mom because I felt like I should be doing it in ways that I saw, you know, there's, you know, pop culture makes, you know, mothers are warm and affectionate and mm-hmm. perfect and all this kind of stuff, and we measure ourselves against these false personas we find that we find ourselves to be lacking. Yeah.
1: You know? Yes.
0: And is it getting is it getting older and wiser that makes us uh, less harsh with ourselves or for for you was it recovery or was it you know talk to me a little bit about my very roundabout question. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I think first of all Oprah says that <laughs> it was in her 50s and 60s that she discovered who she was and began to really embrace it. And I completely agree with that. I I don't know that if I had stayed in my addiction, I would have gotten older or, or wiser, honestly. Um, so I think that I can't, they're, they're conflated for me. The reason I'm 58 is because I stopped, um, I you know, I went to treatment and got sober. I don't think I would have survived, honestly. If I had, I don't think I would be much wiser if I were still in my addiction. I think I would still be living that that shameful you know, running from everybody, hiding life and trying to manage and control everything. But um, I think that, that, like, you know, these cultural enclaves that we have, like in Black culture, I am one way with my Black friends. I'm different than I am with my white friends or in, or in, you know, places where I need to show up for work. And it's not, that I don't think comes at a cost to me. I really don't. I think it's just code switching. And I think it's natural. I think that there's a language and a lexicon that my black friends and I use. There's a shared experience, you know, rooted in 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 being black in America, which is a different thing than being black in other countries. And and it's um, it it just it gives us this this way to talk to each other that is different. I I I think that that is you know not just black people. Like I said, any culture. You know, if you look at like um, Jewish culture or Greek culture. There's there's a way that we connect. I, I consider myself like an honorary Jewish person because my, my kids are Jewish and my ex-husband was Jewish and I spent so much time, you know, making um, Shabbat dinner and all these things while they were growing up. And I love that community. There is a way in that community when I'm there that I act and talk in a way that I don't when I'm with my Black friends or out in the dominant culture. So, there's, I just, I think that is comforting, you know, to be able to get with my Black friends and take off a layer of what I have to wear out in the world. Um, I think it's, I think it's fun. I think it's like, you know, like when you were like with the cool kids in high school. I, don't, I never was, but <laughs> I saw people were.
0: I'm going to say maybe I might have been cool adjacent. I don't know. I, yeah, I, I think I, I was cool I adjacent, won't, too. I won't use the word cool. But, like, I was smoking, so I was trying to be cool. Right.
1: <laughs> that was really cool. Like, I never so did that. So cool. But that was I, super cool. I know.
0: Yeah. I'm joking. I am definitely joking. <laughs> Nothing cool about being addicted to cigarettes.
1: <laughs> no, no. And that's, I mean, that's a real addiction, too. Yes,
0: like, totally. It's,
1: it's, it's one of those things like alcohol yeah. um, where it's legal and it's easily obtainable. but. Um, you know, you can't, you can't, can't like, you know, think that this is something that you can put down easily just because it's sold legally.
0: Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's one of the, one of the, um, yeah, our society makes it easy to, to to do things that, 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 that are not good for you. Um, yes. Laura, I want to ask you about something that you, you've heard in your book. You, I, first of all, I love this word that you made up and it's called shide, uh, which is yes. where you marry shame and pride and that you said you kept your struggle hidden because of this because of of this notion of shied, right like i'm just too proud to ask for the help to mm-hmm. fix what i feel so deeply ashamed about and yes. i i think that's so great and what, what you just talked about we were talking about sort of code switching and personas that they don't come as a at a cost to you it's okay to to it's okay to be different people to be like mm-hmm. a multifaceted person that exists differently in different spaces a little bit, depending upon where you're with and who you are because it doesn't cost you. But shide does cost us. Yes. And I um, think this is such a phenomenal word that I'm glad you brought into the lexicon. Do, <laughs> do you feel that your recovery has made it any easier to ask for help? Because that, that you know, going to rehab is a, is a gigantic immersion experience and, and, mm. and, and becoming vulnerable and asking for help? Did did you come out of recovery as somebody who is you know, sh- sort of rejecting shy? Does it become less of a factor in your life?
1: Yes, for sure. Um, but, I don't make. Sounds decisions. like there's a butt there.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I my, the way I live my life is I do my absolute best not to make decisions based on fear, and I really try to make decisions that are going to, you know, evolve me and even if they're uncomfortable. I'm one of my biggest fears is discomfort. I'm just and I I don't mean I don't mean that lightly, but anything that might create discomfort for me I've avoided all my life. And so it took me a while to see that that was one of my biggest fears. So I the way that I my my recovery is my serenity. It's freedom. That's what it is for me. And the way for me to keep it is to one not make decisions based on fear, and to be really honest, rigorously honest—not just cash register honesty, but that vulnerable honesty about what's going on, which is an uncomfortable place for me. So um, I, I don't automatically, um, you know, do what is right for me. What will what will make? Let me see how I can phrase this. I don't automatically do the right thing um, when I know I'm going to be uncomfortable or when there's some discomfort involved, but I've learned to pause long enough so that I don't knee jerk myself into doing the wrong thing and then having to either make an amends or do, you know, have remorse for what I did. So I, I still have shame, um, I still have a great deal of pride, but I try not to let them rule my life. And, and the way that I do that is that pause, Sometimes I take 24 hours before I take an action on something that has hurt me when I feel slighted, when I feel exposed. Before I take an action on it, I will take a 24 hour, you know, just reflection period and then decide if the action that I still want to take. Do I still want to take that action? Is it the best action for the situation and for my serenity and my freedom? And that's a lot of work. I know that sounds like a lot of work. It doesn't sound, it doesn't feel like that. No, it anymore. sounds,
0: it sounds um, incredible. Honestly, this, this, <laughs> no, really it does. This, this rigorous honesty is yeah. something that I um, have gotten a little bit better at in my own life. And I feel like I could continue to practice it. I, I do think getting to a certain age makes you more rigorously honest, but it's not easy. And this 20, yes. this 24 hour pause is something that, um, It's such a powerful way of of managing yourself through the world, you know. Because that knee jerk reaction, I think our society really encourages. There's just you know you're, everything's twenty four, you know, go 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 and rush 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 rush, and to to protect your serenity requires sometimes um, more rigor.
1: Yes, and that's not to say that I don't ever, you know, act in the moment because I have for sure, but. I do my best not to. I do my best to give myself the gift of that so that I don't engage in behavior that brings me closer toward, you know, that Ambien or the warm swig of vodka that I used to wash it down with. I, I try to um, take actions that bring me closer toward that peace and serenity and joy. Like I live a really joyful life. I love my life. I'm so grateful all the time. I try to stay generous and curious and in gratitude. Um, Because I get to live this life that is incredible,
0: and 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 it's such a gift too. Like, you know, sometimes I think like we. You went through something that was so so hard. You know, your your, the book opens with um, you know a grandma seizure that you had at one of your children's sports events because your body was reacting to. Um either
1: withdrawal,
0: t- withdrawal yeah. of Ambien yeah. and just like the, the physical challenges you went through, the emotional challenges you went through of, of having to leave your home, fly across you know several states to to go to rehab and and just all the the courage and all the physical challenges it took to to rid your body of this you know stuff that you were addicted to so you you've you've done all the hard work um but you know we, Anyone who's listening to this who hasn't even experienced addiction has has gone through something hard with the pandemic. We've all had to deal with like dislocation and fear and 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 um sort of reorienting how we are in the world and I think that um there's something about just getting also to midlife, which is like sort of a crucible of change um, mm-hmm. and yeah again, like I feel like my question is not going anywhere <laughs> like But I just, you know, I I, I'm so fascinated by, you know, what you went through and how you've how you've carved out this 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 new life for yourself. And, you know, you at one point say in your book, you master the art of hiding in plain sight. You know, it's right in the cover of your book, Stash, My Life in Hiding. You know, yeah. Do you feel that getting sober has made
1: you more visible and able to take center stage in your own life? Oh, completely. I mean, the way that I am sober, which is the 12-step recovery, there's there's just kind of no way you're going to be so, sober for as long as I am and not have told your story. Um, and I've told my story so many times, like in in ver- a variety of rooms to people I know really well, to people I've never met. And this that practice of it, which I hated at first, um, has, boy, it really worked for me. So it was, you know, like shame can't live or shame needs to live in the dark or something like that. That's the expression. So opening it up and shining a light on what I was ashamed of, one, not only got me several me toos, not the hashtag. Me too, <laughs> yeah, the good, but, the good ones. Like, but the good ones, like, right. oh, I, I know that feeling or I have that experience. And two, like, I could write this book and I can talk to you about it without re-traumatizing myself because I don't feel that anymore and it's not just the time which helps but it's the work that i've done as well i you know exposing it has has made it so that it doesn't have a hold on me anymore
0: and so when you say work if somebody's listening here who's thinking you yeah. know i would like to do some of this work you know i either really need you know rehab i need to quit something entirely or i want to modify or i want to help somebody in my yeah. life, you know, I, I know from reading the book that, you know, at one point you were taking, you know, nine Ambien's to make it through a night, multiple to mm-hmm. make it through a day. You've been sober almost 15 years. You know, what does the work look like? You know, I, what would you recommend yeah. to people?
1: Well, you know, when I got sober, there weren't very many, there weren't any apps. <laughs> I, barely, I don't think, I didn't have a smartphone in 2008. I didn't have one until 2009. Um but there are so many different communities, different communities where where one can go and get sober now. Um when I was getting sober, it was really kind of just twelve step recovery at that time. So that's one thing is that there are lots of ways to do it. You can do it from home, you can do it discreetly, you can do it one on one. Um, there are sobriety coaches that can help. The way that I did it was I went to twelve step recovery meetings. um I got a sponsor. And um I went through the 12 steps. Each one of them um, you know, required some writing and some some introspect and you know, really just this kind of uh, years-long self-examination, um, which which help, meditation helped meditation help with that for me. I meditate every morning and I work out every morning, as you know, because I told you I was gonna be coming from a workout today. And and that's part of my recovery, honestly, but also just like I said, going back through my 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 life and looking at where all these things started and without judgment, you know, oh, so I started hiding here at age five. I was a kid. Of course I did. It was survival. That makes perfect sense. Now, do I need all these coping skills, you know, that I developed when I was five as a 58-year-old adult? Probably not. Let's look at them, you know, and see which ones are useful. And which ones aren't? And the ones that aren't, then I start looking at how I can minimize my usage of them and hopefully eventually eliminate them so that I can live in a way that is freer, a life that I'm proud of, a life that doesn't include as much shame or pain or discomfort, because a lot of the shame, pain and discomfort came from me, my efforts to hide what was going on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think, like you said earlier, the shame, like you know, lit must it requires darkness, you know, to thrive. Yes. And when we, when we turn the spotlight on, and when we just, oh, you know, when we share, when we say things like. I have menopause, you know, painful sex, dry vagina. Everyone's like, me too, me too. This is like, I'm thinking of just conversations that I've had that I like, you know, yeah. I used to sort of feel reluctant to talk about. And now I'm like, hey, like how long, like, how's your vagina? You know, like, <laughs> like it conversations because it's, then it normalizes things. And, yeah. you know, and if people are suffering then they share and you can get help and information and you don't feel alone. And by the, when you actually share what's going on in your life, you discover you have a lot of company. Um, and I, it, sometimes it can feel very lonely if you're just, you know, suffering, suffering alone. Um, right. Wh- you know, I want to ask you something about what your sober sponsor says to you in the book. And, you know, I want to maybe end on this note before we move into our speed round, because I think it's important. To, it's, it's, this is a segue of, of, of sharing and, and not feeling ashamed. Your sober sponsor says to you, quote, you know, we are not bad people trying to be good. We are mm-hmm. sick people trying to get well. And yeah. I, I just flagged this because to me it sounded like one of the best descriptions, you know, of addiction that I've ever heard. And I, you know, what do you wish that people who are not struggling knew about substance abuse disorders and what it's like to navigate and move through them?
1: I think, um, yeah, I mean, I, you you hit the nail on the head. I I think that's the thing that I want to impart to people is that. You know, these decisions that are made during the throes of an addiction aren't choice. You know, they're, 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 it looks like choice. I mean, even me, you know, at, you know, four or five years sober, I found myself judging people for the choices they made in their addiction and then, you know, shaking myself like, what are you doing? Like, you know, you know what that's about. You know, there is, there's, we lose the power of choice. And because, for sure, Katie, I would have chosen my kids every time if I'd had a choice. I would have never chosen to take another pill over the possibility of losing my children. But it did feel like survival to me. I could not do it. And and it was incredibly, it was excruciating to experience that. And I would swear off and say, I'm not going to and look in my kids' faces and be like, I couldn't do this to them. And then I'd be, you know, high and drunk, you know, by, after I put them to sleep that night. So it, for me, it wasn't a choice. The choice would have been my kids. The addiction took over. And it, and it didn't let me make any choices. And I don't think people know that. And I think they also, I think a lot of people don't believe this is something that can be addressed medically. Um. And it can um, not not entirely medically for some people like me, there needed to be other components. But you know, I I had to go to treatment to be medically detoxed. This wasn't something that I could have white knuckled through um, because of the you know medical emergency that you described that I have at the beginning. So these these are this is something that needs to be treated, and the people that are going through it need to be treated like sick people.
0: Absolutely, you're you're reminding me. I had a wonderful author on the show, um, probably a year and a half ago now, named Terry Cheney, who wrote three really phenomenal books on her struggle with bipolar disorder and um, you know multiple suicide attempts. And she shared that uh, people's misunderstanding about suicide you know, the 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 siren song of suicide is it's a lie that your brain is trying to tell you that this is what needs to happen. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like, um, you know, pills, it's like the, the, your body is being told a lie by the, the drugs that this is going to make you feel better. This is not something that you're able to, you know, it, it's not a decision. It's, it's something that's happening that requires, for you, a medical detox. For Terry, she required, um, you know, inpatient um, care and um, medicine, yeah. That allowed yeah. her, you know, that allowed her body to stop telling her this lie, to end this sort
1: of siren song that that was being sung to her. I mean, that's real. That is absolutely real. And and it's yeah, your brain, I mean, there's a whole science to it what your brain does um once it's addicted to a substance or anything. Actually, it could be gambling or sex or shopping. The pathways change. You know, different different things are have been bludgeoned in like different neuron neural pathways have been bludgeoned and different ones are activated. And you get this really reptilian brain um, instead of the brain you were born with. And it's a hard it's a hard thing to change back, you know, to ungroove those pathways.
0: Well, 15 years is such a, a milestone to be proud of. And this book is just a gorgeous offering to the world. So thank you for writing it. And thank you for coming on today to to share your story. We're going to close with a speed round because we're near the end of our time. This is just mm. you know, one to two word answers so we can learn a little bit more about you before we say goodbye. Uh, writing Stash was?
1: So much fun.
0: The first time you saw Stash out in the wild on a bookstore shelf, it felt
1: exhilarating, and surreal.
0: Nice. Um, this is a must-read book. What are other books that you think examine addiction in a helpful way?
1: Uh, Quit Like a Woman by Holly Whitaker, who is my dear friend. Uh, but it is it is the Bible for Quitlet. It's the book that started Quitlet. Um, I, w- I think it's like mandatory reading for everyone because it deals not only with um, substance use disorder, but it deals with big alcohol and, and how they work in our country or in the world and just really important stuff. And I would also say Heavy by Kiese um, who is an incredible Black American author, Southern author who writes about um, a food and gambling addiction in a way that I've never seen um, someone from his gender write.
0: I will put both of those in the show notes. This sound phenomenal. Um, right. I know that Ambien no longer helps you sleep. What activity or lifestyle hack helps you um, hit the pillow? <laughs> by the way, I need this answer because you know sleep is the it's holy so- grail for midlife women.
1: <laughs> it's so silly. I play words with friends um, at about 1030 every night.
0: I and- love it.
1: And I end up getting sleepy, and as soon as I get sleepy, I quickly like get under the covers and lay down and wait for it to come.
0: <laughs> I love it. Any kind of sleep, but I do, yeah. Sleep, any sleep hack works. I, I'm a big eye mask person. That's, that helps a little bit. Um, okay. On I know you have wrote this book. Uh, on do you believe in writing classes? Yes or no.
1: Yes, I'm teaching too. Ooh. I definitely believe
0: in them. Oh, those are going in the show notes. Okay, write, <laughs> writing groups, yes or no? Do you work with Absolutely. a
1: group? Absolutely. I've had the same one since 2016.
0: Nice. Do you write longhand or with a computer? Computer. Okay. Finally, your one-word answer to complete this sentence. As I age, I feel... Hopeful. Hopeful. Very nice. Uh, before we say goodbye, how can our listeners find you, stash, my life in hiding, and follow your work?
1: Thank you for asking that. Um, I live mainly on Instagram, on the socials. That's at Laura Cathcart Robbins. That's C-A-T-H-C-A-R-T Robbins with two B's, one S. And uh, theonlyonepod.com. That's our website. It's for the Only One in the Room podcast. And you can find everything on me on that site, including the book
0: phenomenal. Thank you, Laura. And speaking of Holly Whitaker, who wrote Quit Like a Woman, I flagged this as well. She calls Stash, My Life in Hiding, an irresistibly delicious story that will sit in your bones and write over your memory like it happened to you. I know I will not forget this book or this conversation. Thank you for being here today.
1: Thank you. This
0: wraps A Certain Age, a show for women who are aging without apology. Want to hear more stories of women making the most of midlife? Come follow the podcast sister account over on Instagram. You can find it at Let's Age Out Loud. Have a story that you want to share? We would love to feature you. Please head over to at Let's Age Out Loud to submit your story at the link in bio. Special thanks to Michael Mancini, who composed and produced our theme music. See you next time. and Until then, age boldly, beauties.